telling stories. We all do it, but telling stories without words is a very special art. How do you find the nuances and grey areas, the subtle degrees of hurt and happiness, without words to pin them down? Our guest today, the choreographer Cathy Marston, has a talent for capturing those elusive shades of meaning through engrossing dance and movement. I'm David Jays, and this is Why Dance Matters, a new podcast from the Royal Academy of Dance. They're conversations with remarkable people about how dance shapes their lives and how it can help us think about the world. The Cellist by Cathy Marston was the last new ballet I saw before the UK's first lockdown. It was typically ambitious, telling the story of Jacqueline Dupre, the genius musician whose career was cut short by illness. The wonder of dance is that it doesn't have to be literal. So we saw Dupre's family and husband, but one dancer portrayed her cello itself, her closest companion, her deepest means of expression. Their duets were shiveringly close, but when Dupre fell ill, the two dancers lost their connection. It was a heartrending image. Kathy is now a major player in leading ballet companies, places that until recently were a boys' own club. Her starting point is often literature or history. Her work is also prominently discussed in the new Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Ballet, which is co-edited by Katrina Ferrugia-Creel of the RAD's Faculty of Education and Jill Nunes-Jensen. One chapter peeks inside Cathy's rehearsal room, and I'm keen to go there too. How does she get dancers to embody the characters' interior lives? What can dance do that words cannot? Let's ask. Kathy, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining us on Why Dance Matters. Thank you for having me. To go back to the very beginning, I think your parents were both English teachers. So did thinking about different ways of telling stories, different kinds of books come into your life really early? Yeah, I think they did, although obviously I wasn't really aware or conscious of that happening at the time. We were certainly read to very often. We went to the theatre, we went to see different sorts of performances, you know, Shakespeare or musicals. But obviously I had lots of other hobbies, one of them being dance, and that really took over. So it wasn't until a bit later that I connected dance with storytelling Although there were several workshops in my childhood and early adolescence that made a difference. One of them I remember being with Rombert Dance Company and they came to Cambridge and did a workshop on Christopher Bruce's Swan Song. And that really made me think because they taught us how the chair in that particular ballet is used to represent so many different things from his sort of friends to his jailed, all sorts of things. That was just mind-opening to me that you could use objects to transform to become different storytelling props or devices. And did you ever think of theatre as a potential? Yeah, yeah, I wanted to be an actress. I actually, I I wanted to be a policewoman because there was a TV series (laughs) called Juliet Bravo. (laughs) 
And uh, I, Juliet Bravo, yes. Yeah, she was this oh. female sort of inspector, and I thought she was great. And then my mum said, actually, she was really an actress. And so I wanted to become an actress like <laughs> her. <laughs> but, then, but I was too young to have acting classes. We couldn't find any. So that was when I started tap dancing, because I also had a passion for movie musicals, Fred Astaire and Situis and all that sort of thing. So I thought I could learn all the different things that I might need as an actress. Tap was the beginning, and then soon the tap teacher said, oh, I really should start ballet as well, and then jazz followed, and contemporary, and soon it was, it was all sorts of dance styles until I went to the Royal Ballet School when I was 16. I do feel that the world has lost something in not having Detective Inspector Marston in it, because <laughs> that would be quite fun. Thank you. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know, maybe there's still time. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you started choreographing really quite young. You were doing stuff at the, the Royal Ballet School and then through the beginning of your own dancing career. But when did you start to feel that performing wasn't the end destination? Really early. I knew that already at the Royal Ballet School. So when I arrived at 16, I'd done a couple of the summer schools at White Lodge. And on the senior summer school, some of the senior school students came to choreograph, including Christopher Hampson, actually, and David Dawson and Tom Sapsford. I just thought that was the best thing about the whole experience. And when I got to the upper school, I immediately joined the choreographic program. So you could choose if you wanted to choreograph. And Norman Morris and David Drew were the tutors. And I immediately just loved that part of the course. Spent most of my time thinking about that part of the course. Any spare hours, I'd be up in their office listening to music and going through the LPs that they had stored up there. Um, So I knew that that was where I really wanted to go. I also knew that I wanted and needed to dance first. But it was definitely, that was the plan. It's interesting that all the names you've mentioned so far have been men. And I'm just wondering, at that time, were you concerned that there wasn't a kind of big body of female role models out there who were choreographing on big stages and with major companies? Honestly, it didn't occur to me until David Drew let me know that this was a problem. So he was fantastic, actually, and I think probably encouraged me in an extra special way because he was conscious and Norman Morris were conscious that there there weren't enough female choreographers. And I had a friend or a colleague, one of my year group, Nicole Tung, who also was very passionate about choreographing, and we worked a lot together, and they were fantastic with both of us. They really helped us along the way. So, no, it didn't worry me particularly that I didn't have a role model because I was being nurtured by particularly David and Norman so well. I am really interested to get into the the process and the way in which you draw stories out of dancers because it's it's so interesting I think the choreographer Christopher Wielden once told me that it can be intimidating to go into a studio to meet a new company of dancers because he said all their eyes turn to you like a kind of meerkat colony because they're all just waiting to be fed (laughs) with material is that how it feels? Fantastic image yeah pretty much I think I'll leave it with him there he's said it explained very well. So you have to come in with already 
a pretty well-developed plan, knowing what kind of stuff you're wanting to find, where you're wanting this process to go? You have to go in with whatever you need to feel confident. And that's really different for every individual choreographer. So some will come in with a phrase already prepared. Some are just innately confident in their you know, improvisation or their, their ability to create on the spot. I usually bring in a document that I've now over the last few years called the master plan. And so I do a lot of research before I enter the studio, which will include obviously identifying the theme or the story, reading the book, if it's a book or certainly around the subject with a biography, it will be reading many books on that subject. I have different tabs for different parts of the research, but I write lots of things down and Before I get to the studio, I will reduce those research elements to lists of words. So each character, before I begin, will have a list of words that are kind of prompts or cues to create movement. With each dancer, we work on those words. So I'll come in with a long list, but I'll ask them to help me add to it so they engage with the the process. And then we'll start to create simple movement phrases from those lists that just create a language or a vocabulary for each individual character. So this is before we would put any scene together, before we would begin to touch one another in a part of deux, anything like that. So each character knows how they move, they know how they walk, they might have a few sort of hand motifs or, or body motifs. And that I find very helpful because then when you begin to put a scene together, a duet or a trio, Each dancer already knows they don't need to be told, oh, you actually walk heel toe or toe heel or you you like doing lame ducks. You have a toe. I mean, (laughs) they've, they've got sort of things that they can throw into the mix and it makes it very collaborative then when you're putting the scenes together. And of course, when we do put those scenes together, I'll also talk through the scene dynamic in quite a lot of detail. And sometimes we'll read, if it is coming from a book, we'll read the relevant passage of the book. I might even show them an excerpt of a film if I feel it's relevant. Because my process is very collaborative, I need to engage the dancers in their minds before we start working with our bodies. So you you really do need your dancers to be very active creators. Yes. Yeah. There's a really nice chapter in the new Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Ballet where Carrie Gazer Casey sits in on your rehearsals for Snowblind at San Francisco Ballet and she says that you work more like a theatre director adapting a text for the stage creating monologues and dialogues to clarify movement intention which is as you've described it just now so there's a sense that you're kind of warming up the dancers imaginations so that they can then bring more stuff to the table. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I find that I'm lucky to work with dancers who are far better movers than I am. I can show some things and sometimes I do show some things and I have a way of being able to put them in the sort of world of my movement style so I can indicate and suggest enough physically that they're not going to suddenly come on suggesting kind of balancing steps or, you know, we can figure out the place that I like to reside, which is sort of somewhere between classical ballet and contemporary. But what's important to me is that the movement comes from the inside rather than the outside. 
it's astounding to me sometimes if I do show something. I'll give an example. Pas de and I'm going to touch my partner's face. And it's a really meaningful moment. And it's a narrative moment. And I'm touching his face very specifically with a, a particular message. And the dancer's just not getting it. And I cannot understand why they're not getting it because it's the most simple moment, really. And yeah. after the rehearsal, I talked to my assistant, Jenny Tattersall, and she says, you know, they were watching your feet. They were looking at what <laughs> your feet were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's really telling that sometimes you, you have to be such a clear communicator to make the dancers understand what's important to you about the movement if you're showing it. Often I find it's better not to show and better to articulate that to begin with, see what comes out of them to convey that particular message and then shape that. Right. And then I guess as well, they have a greater sense of owning the material. Yeah, there's definitely a great sense of owning. And with the list of words, I'm always clear with them. I would never expect the audience to read their movement phrases like a dictionary. But what you do find is if the dancers know that this particular movement came from the word prickly or from the word evaporate or from the word collapse, then they will perform it with much greater clarity. I'm also really interested in the emotional life of the works that you make because the emotions in classic ballets, especially the ones that come from fairy tales or folk tales, they're often quite sort of big headline feelings about love and betrayal. But you often dig into very complex and complicated emotions, things like the competition between a mother and daughter in Victoria or the way infidelity will haunt a marriage in the suit. How do you tease out those shades of meaning and feeling? Lots of thinking about it and then talking about it. I mean, I love those things. Big classical ballets, of course, they sweep through those huge emotions, as you say. But I think the dancers do a lot of work to make them feel as rich as they do on stage. I was very influenced, I remember, by reading Gelsie Kirkland's autobiography, Dancing on My Grave, when I was quite young and yeah. fascinated by the research that she put into every single step of those classical works. I really do believe those great ballerinas, they don't just sort of go, oh, I'm betrayed. They put yes. a lot underneath it to make all of the movement really feel true when they're performing. I want to be part of that process because I love that process. Um, yeah. And so I'm choosing and specifying and discussing those quite complex situations right from the beginning. I do also really love your trios. You do give very good trios. And <laughs> I'm thinking you. about things like, <laughs> like the one at the heart of Snowblind. Um, yeah. With San Francisco Ballet, which is based on the Edith Wharton novella about an unhappy marriage into which a third person yeah. enters. Or there's the cellist at the Royal Ballet about Jacqueline Dupre, and she dances with two male dancers. One portrays her husband, one portrays her beloved cello. And there is so much going on in those. Are they really satisfying to create? Yeah, and they're quite hard because you're juggling three balls. They're definitely challenging and they take longer to get right. But again, if you've got the dancers clear with what you're trying to say, 
they really can help because it's very easy to, well, it's not very easy, but it's far easier to create a part of it because you can sort of step in and be one and guide the other. You can control it. But with a trio, you cannot be three people at once. And even if you can guide one person, you can't take care of the other person. So it's quite tricky not to have a sort of one left out. You know, two's company, three's a crowd. Yes. So that's why I really have to make sure that the dancers know what we're trying to say so they can suggest. I'm just thinking to those creative rehearsals with Lauren and Marcy and Matthew, the cellist. They really knew what they were trying to say. So if I give Lauren a step with Matthew, Marcy was right behind it, just throwing something out there, putting something into the mix. And then I can step back and say, well, that really works. Or could you do that on the floor? Or could you add a jump to that? You know, I can then shape it afterwards. Wow. It's almost as if you've got a kind of a film director's camera knowing exactly what you're wanting the audience to pay attention to at any given moment. Usually I have to get something out first and then you do step back and realise, oh, that movement's taking my attention over there when actually the thing I really want to see is here. And then sometimes it's just as simple as saying, well, instead of an arabesque towards stage right, could you reverse that so that your eye gets led back towards stage left? One of the things that is quite uh, quite terrifying, really, about ballet as opposed to theatre is that, in general, you don't get a preview period, mm, do you? Yeah. Often the first public performance is also the press night. And, is, and so is it often on revival? Do you get a chance to kind of work on those layers to think, OK, this bit didn't quite read, I, the audience didn't, feel like they were getting what I wanted them to get from this moment do you do you get a chance to kind of re rework things or does it have to be absolutely right on the night um I think it has to be right on the night really to get the revival oh well there is that yes <laughs> yeah um and to be perfectly honest I haven't experienced too many revivals in which I've been able to be involved so uh, Jane Eyre obviously was taken from Northern Ballet to American Ballet Theatre and then on to Joffrey. Wow. So that's been the best example in that case. And it was really great to be able to work with both of those two companies on it and on quite large stages. So taking a piece that had been made for Doncaster originally and then putting it on the stage at the Met in New York <laughs> was quite something. And so inevitably, some things had to change and expand. And I added a few people here and there without wanting it to suddenly seem like a sort of cast of thousands, which wouldn't have felt right for Yorkshire Moors anyway. You can definitely work on things in retrospect if you do get to restage them. But sometimes, you know, Snowblind, I didn't get to go back for very long to restage it. And indeed, other casts have performed that piece. So then actually, Sarah Van Patten, for example, who created the role of Xena originally in Snowblind, was pregnant for the revival when it came to London. And she coached the two dancers who took on the role and she did a fantastic job. And I think they were very grateful for her insight as well. I think you're relying on the whole team and therefore I go back to communication. It's so important to be clear with your intentions from the outset. You're right, right. And I guess as well, you would like 
subsequent casts of dancers to be able to make those roles their own rather than just try to be a carbon copy of the first person who who created it because otherwise if they do that it's not going to be alive that's what i mean in terms of the intentions if sarah and i'm sure she did in reteaching her part went back to the initial words and the vocabulary and the as i keep using the word intention but it is the key word then it's never going to be it's not about well how exactly was that leg or it's it's not about that for me of course there's a shape and a form and a timing but sometimes that timing even does come from the intention and if it falls on a beat or just off a beat if it's deliberately there because it feels true i would rather that right yes historically i guess the the ballet studio the rehearsal studio has quite often been a hierarchical sort of a place a deferential kind of a a, a place I don't know, does that feel as if that's changed over the course of your career? I'm certainly thinking that for the kind of work you make, that actually wouldn't be helpful. People who were too shy to speak up and to add to the mix aren't going to help the work. I feel like I've been actually very lucky in my career. I don't think I have experienced as a dancer that hierarchical thing in a very pronounced way. Of course, when you're sort of 30 people in a studio, there has to be a level of listening to the front. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, you can't hear 30 voices at once. So I think dancers have to learn when to step in, when to speak up and when not to. And I think that comes with experience. So you usually find that it's not so much about the hierarchy of a company in terms of what a ballet soloist principle, but rather just the experienced people. Within a corps de ballet number, you'll discover that there are two or three people who you can speak to and somehow the information then filters through. They're leaders of the group, I suppose, and they will speak up. And they're not always the more experienced, but quite often, I think. Carrie Gaser Casey, when she's writing about your rehearsals in the Oxford Handbook, she also writes about how the female character's perspective is crucial to your ballets and including the experience of female desire rather than being desired, which is, you know, in so many traditional Mm. stories. And she says that when you were working on one scene in Snowblind, her note that she scribbled was, this is porn for women. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm not quite sure if that was what you were going for. Maybe it was. But is, is she right about female experience being your starting point? I don't think it's a conscious thing, but as I am female, it may well be. I mean, I suppose it is my starting point. I mean, it's funny how some things just come naturally, isn't it? It's definitely not something that I've set out to do, but I can acknowledge and recognise that it has happened along the way. I think the bit that she's referring to was probably the apron bit. There's a part of the right, where, yes. where yeah. Ethan is in the kitchen at night and Zena's upstairs and, and Matty, the maid who he's fallen in love with he takes off her apron they sort of touch each other through the cloth so it's really subtle and it's kind of electrifying at the same time I think that's the bit that she probably was referring to do you get moments in rehearsal where I don't know goosebumps or the hair stand up on the back of your neck where you think oh yes this is we've hit something here this is this is working yeah I love those moments 
(laughs) (laughs) And are they sometimes unpredictable moments, not things you had expected to land quite so Um, with such a charge? Yeah, they can be. That particular apron moment I had in my head, so I was happy that it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, sometimes because I don't have any movement preconceived beforehand, so it's very often a little touch, a little manoeuvre around two people or three people can do it. And sometimes it's with the music and you just have to get the right thing on the right time with the music. In the cellist, the bit that gets me is when Jackie is on the floor, when the cellist is on the floor at the end and the little girl comes back in, her younger self. She was so beautiful, how she did it, Emma. And she she came in and it was just the way she did it on the particular bar of the music always gave me goosebumps. At the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that one of your mentors at the Royal Ballet School warned you that female choreographers on big stages wasn't a thing. Mm. (laughs) Um, And there was a long period in which, you know, critics and audiences, I think, were certainly noticing that maybe even more pressingly than directors of companies that feels like it's changing does it feel it's changed for good yeah I think it probably has changed forever I mean things will fluctuate inevitably and there are not that many opportunities you know you, you have to work hard to get to those that handful of chances that there are around the world really every year for the really yeah. big companies to commission big ballets inevitably sometimes there will be a shift towards one way or the other. But I don't think we can go back now. I mean, there's always a sense as a performer that you're not in complete control of your own destiny. You're waiting to be hired, you're waiting to be cast. Does it feel like that as a choreographer too, that you can't always be the captain of your ship? Funny enough, I had a conversation about this with two dancers who are also young choreographers yesterday. I was creating a duet for them and they were asking me about this and complaining that they felt like that as dancers. And I I said, you know, it really doesn't change. (laughs) (laughs) Right. My advice to them was spread your options out a little bit. One of the things that's happened during the COVID period for me is I've been stuck in Switzerland where I live. Normally I travel a huge amount. And so I couldn't go to any of those places where I should have been working and creating so yeah. I got together with a friend and a colleague called Ethan Rustim, who's another choreographer. I actually, I, I employed him as a dancer when I directed the Burn Ballet back in 2007. Since that time, he's become a choreographer himself and also works a lot internationally. And we were both stuck in Switzerland <laughs> at home. And both of us have got way too much energy and creativity to sit still. <laughs> we have founded a company here in Switzerland, a project-based company called Compagnie La Ronde. Our first production will be a version of La Ronde by Schnitzler oh, that we're going nice. to tour in the Steps Festival, which is a big Swiss dance festival that happens every two years. So they're co-commissioning it and that will happen next year. And it's been really interesting because you would think, you know, you're making your own company, you can make the decisions, but you're actually just waiting on other people's decisions. So when you work for commissions to big ballet companies, of course, you're at the mercy of the directors. Are they going to give you another one? Are they going to give you work? And if you form your own company, you're applying to the funding bodies, the different charities. 
you'd still need a theatre to give you space and time yeah. and performances. So, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things. Your dance is not something that you do on your own. You're not a writer. And even a writer needs a publisher, really. But I suppose you could self-produce. Yeah. But it's a group activity. And go back to communication. Got to communicate. Cathy, <laughs> yes. I guess your work isn't autobiographical in terms of plot, unless you've had a really eventful no. life. But, but does it feel emotionally autobiographical when you look back over your work is it a bit like reading a diary no it's not like reading a diary but I definitely have to find my way in to the story so Queen Victoria is a good example perhaps I was commissioned to create a ballet about Queen Victoria and and beyond that it was pretty much up to me there's so many aspects that you could take of her life that would be potential material for a ballet but the moment I discovered the little story about her relationship with her youngest daughter, Princess Beatrice, and had the idea of this mother-daughter relationship, the, the concept of Beatrice rewriting her mother's story and what that might have been. You know, I'm a daughter. I'm also a mother. It suddenly felt like I could access the story in a more personal and intimate way than other entry points might have been for me. Yeah, that was such an interesting relationship and such a such an unusual relationship to be explored in any medium, actually. It's not something you see that kind of, that intimate but competitive, trusting and untrustful kind of relationship between a mother and daughter. Yeah. It, it's a fantastic subject. Yeah. So, um, that wasn't a question. That was thank just you. me being happy. So thank you. So look, Kathy, I will stop. I will let you go. But um, before I do that, I just have to ask one last question, which is, why does dance matter to you? It's simply the way that I can express my ideas. I have other ways of expressing ideas. I like writing and I, indeed I like talking. But yeah. there's something about dance and I would say also music and to some extent poetry that I find you can express things without being so specific that it feels wrong. So sometimes you feel things inside and it's not just one thing, it's harmony. It would be a chord. You can feel more than one thing at the same time. Those things can jar against one another or they can be harmonic together. And dance can do that. You can say things with so many different parts of your body, you know, your hand can be soft and your legs can be, you know, strong as iron. And that expresses something that you can feel that would be really difficult to say in one word. And poetry does manage to do it sometimes. That's why I would include poetry. But you're sort of normal writing, <laughs> whatever, that, whatever the right word for that is. Yes. <laughs> um, says one thing at a time. And so I feel like dance is a really wonderful way of discovering and feeling empathy for other people's situations because you have to sort of really put your body into another place. And if you're watching it, you have to take a leap of faith into that dancer's body. I think when you're watching dance, you sort of have a feeling of being in that dancer's body, or I do. And so you feel what it's like to be someone else. I think that's really important, especially now you know these days we need empathy more than ever that's a beautiful place to close thank you so much Kathy it's been a real pleasure to speak to you likewise thank you 
Telling stories feels like a fundamental human activity. And Cathy's work reminds us that we carry our own stories within us. We speak volumes even without saying a word. What are the stories told in dance that matter most to you? Let me know at Mr David J's on Twitter. The RAD is at RAD headquarters. Our show notes include links to Cathy's and the RAD's work, plus details of the Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Ballet. The RAD is hosting its launch in June. And please do subscribe and like the podcast to help us find other people who might enjoy Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Cathy Marston. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Hayley Izzard, Celia Moran and Melanie Murphy. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and the choreographer who captures all our shades of meaning is our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.